Can anyone here this morning tell me anything about a king named Asa in the Bible? King Asa. Well, you're in the right place today then, okay? We're going to learn about him today. If you have your Bible, let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Hopefully when you leave, you can say, yeah, I know a little bit about him anyway. Here's a bit of background. The people had been in Egypt, right? And Moses took them out. Well, God took them out. Moses led them to the promised land. Joshua and the men, uh, warriors, captured that land, destroyed the people who were there and moved in, built cities, and took over. Saul became the first king. Then David was the second king. Solomon was the third king. And then there was a squabble. And the kingdom was divided. Here's a map. If you look at the, the, nor- the north end there, that's uh, the tribe, what became the kingdom of Israel. The, sometimes we think of the whole thing as being Israel, but in this time of their, of their history, the green part was Israel, and they had one king, and the purple part was Judah, and they had another king. And uh, these two kingdoms did not get along most of the time. And King Asa was king of the southern kingdom, the purple kingdom. Solomon was his great-grandfather. He took over from his father when he died, and Asa became the king. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 2 says, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. I'd like that to be said about me when I'm gone. He did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. What were some of the good and right things that he did? Well, if you look on the next few verses, we see some of them. He got rid of some of the altars to the foreign gods that the people had made. He destroyed the incense altars in high places. He tore down, in my version it says, he tore down the sacred pillars in verse 3. These sacred pillars were made out of stone. The people who lived in the land before the Israelites came, the Canaanites, had these stone towers, kind of, or pillars to their god who was Baal. And it tells us also he tore down the ashram. These were wooden carvings which represent where Baal lived, supposedly, in the stone pillars. And the ashram beside that was where Baal's consort slash goddess, anyway, his partner lived in there. And the people worshipped both these things. And it was kind of a debauchery kind of worship anyway. He tore these things down and destroyed them and commanded Judah, it says in verse 4, to seek the Lord God of their fathers and observe the law and the commandments. He was a good man. There's a parallel passage to this in 1 Kings 15. There it tells us that he got rid of the male cult prostitutes. They tore down the idols that his fathers had made and so on and cleaned up the place. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David, his great-great-grandfather, had done. And the Lord gave him ten years of peace, we read there in verse 6. And he was wise. He didn't just use his ten years of peace, put his feet up and relax and enjoy being king. But he took that time to build up his kingdom. He built walls, it tells us here, around the cities. When Christy and I were in Israel, we saw many excavations when they were digging up the ancient cities and the walls that were around these cities. He built walls. He built towers. He built gates. And it says here, bars. He was fortifying his cities because he knew that someday there was going to be battle. And he wanted his people to be ready, to be protected, to be safe. He got together an army, we read in verse 8 there. 
an army of 580,000 men, and all of them were valiant warriors. Those are the kind of guys you want to have on your side, valiant warriors. They were spearmen, it tells us there. They were archers. Maybe you've read before about the men from Benjamin who were archers. Uh, Some of them were pretty good, and guys with slings, too. They could shoot their slings at a hair and not miss, it tells us in Scripture. These guys were accurate. So he had a 580,000-man army, and he was feeling pretty good about how things were going here for him. But we read in the next verse that a guy from Ethiopia came marching up. Now you see, well, maybe you can't see, but on the below, of that, in the kind of the bottom left of that map, there's a sign that says Egypt. And Ethiopia is below that, down in Africa. They came marching up from there, up to meet King Asa and his men in Judah. They came to a town called Mereshah, or Moresheth, and they settled in a valley there, a big valley. This enemy army came looking for war. Asa had 580,000 men, right? Well, it tells us that the enemy army that came had a million. A million warriors, 300 chariots. Asa looks at that and realizes his people are badly outnumbered. They came up to this valley. Now, I don't, it wasn't this valley, but this is a similar valley. We were near that area. And here's what the kind of the valleys looked like there. There's hills, not huge mountains, but hills there, and then flat places in between. So one army's camped on one side of the valley, the other army's camped at the other side of the valley, and they're awaiting orders from their kings to attack each other. King Asa sees that he's in trouble, badly outnumbered, and he recognizes his dependence upon God. And we see in verse 11, Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you, and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. It's a very wise thing to do as king. Kind of reminds me of when Jonathan and his armor bearer back earlier in, in 1 Samuel were challenging the Philistines. He didn't know, even know how many were up there. He said, let's climb up this ridge. When we get to the top, we'll attack them. And there's only two of these guys. And Jonathan says, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And that's true. It doesn't matter to God. If it's, the odds are one to one, or ten to one, or a thousand to one. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. You look at this prayer he gave, and every phrase repeats his dependence upon God. I wonder if you're feeling like that this morning. Or if not, maybe you have. Feeling outnumbered, weak, overpowered. There's no way you can stand against the onslaught that's coming. We all face things that are, are beyond us from time to time. Things that we can't deal with us. Forces that are bearing down on us. And we're helpless. We're hopeless against the opposition. What do we do in those kind of situations? 
Some of us medicate ourselves, maybe, with prescription drugs or TV or shopping therapy or food or leisure. Or we resort to things like cutting to dull the pain and ignore what's happening around us. Sometimes when we're feeling overwhelmed like that, we react back with, with fury and, and vehemence and in desperation. We're defending ourselves and not caring if it's the truth or not. We're just out to uh, attack somebody else and do wage war and hurting people in our rampage and not caring about it. Or do we take the route that King Asa did? He sees he's in a bad situation. And apart from God, he has no hope. They cast himself upon God, the only one who can help in this situation. So Asaph prays. And in verse 12, the next verse, So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asaph and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. The top star was where the battle was. The bottom star over there near Gerar is where they chased them down to that area before they caught up to them and finished them off, the enemy. This is the area of Gerar today. It's nice. It's a nice area. It's a place where Abraham settled many years before that. We found some of these ruins there, and who knows, it could have been the exact city or very close to that area anyway. But Asa and his men rushed down after these Ethiopians and pursued them that far. It says, so many of them fell, they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And the soldiers carried away much plunder. They they got the plunder that the soldiers had with them, that the supply camps had, that the cities around there had. It tells us specifically they collected livestock. They took away a large number of sheep and camels. And they came back to Jerusalem rejoicing, happy, relieved. God had helped them in their distress and brought about an amazing victory, a mighty deliverance. In chapter 15, we see that uh, as they're coming back to Jerusalem, back to their home turf, triumphant, that a prophet comes out to talk to them. And the prophet says to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. The next few verses, this prophet is kind of given a history lesson to Asa. I won't go into that too much. But he talks about some of the troubles and distresses that the people faced in the past and how they turned to God in their distress. And he let them find him, as it said in the middle of that verse there. There's another passage like that in Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. The prophet tells uh, Asa to take courage. And Asa does. And we read on in the middle of chapter 15 that he does some more cleaning in the area. Gets rid of some more idols that have cropped up. He, he, there's some cities between Judah and Israel. Kind of a buffer zone there. Maybe like Crimea is between Russia and Ukraine right now. And sometimes one nation would control it, and sometimes the other nation would control it. And at that time, Asa had some of those cities, and some of those cities still had idols in them and false gods 
And he tore those things out and cleaned it up and was getting things prepared. It tells us also he restored the altar. Altar of the Lord. And I'm not sure what it means by restored the altar. I guess one commentator suggests that maybe he uh, reconsecrated it. Or perhaps he expanded it, made it bigger because he knew what was coming. He had plans. We'll see later on in the chapter here. But he did good things after that battle. He, he continued to serve God and obey him and do what was right. He gathered together the people. In the middle of chapter 15, we read about that. And I noticed an interesting thing here. Um, in verse 9, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin. Well, that's his country, right? So that makes sense. But there were other people from other tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, Simeon, who came down too. It says, they defected to him from Israel when they saw the Lord his God was with him. These people in the northern kingdom that were not following God, they saw what happened when people in the south were following God, and they decided to leave up there and move down to where God was at work, where God was being worshipped and being followed. And you know, there's people like that today. There's people who are attracted to people who are sold out for God. They want to be around someone like that. If you decide to go all out for the Lord, to live for him 100%, you might not be as alone as you think you will be. Because there are people who are drawn to someone like that. Maybe they're just waiting for somebody like that to step out. And they'll come and join and be part of the band of people who can support each other to follow God with all their hearts. Maybe you're one like that. Maybe I would suggest you to look for somebody who is following God with all his heart and attach yourself to him. Join in with them. Learn from them and band together. Well, Asa gathered these people all together and they had a huge sacrifice to the Lord. It tells us in verse 11, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep were sacrificed that day. This was just a part of the plunder they'd taken from that battle. So it must have been a pretty good haul when they brought all of the, the boot, booty back to home again. And it tells us, the verse I have up there, they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. Asa sort of encouraged them to do this, and the people stepped up and said, yes, we will do that. They made an oath to the Lord. It was a great time of celebration. Uh, we read here that... Um, they, they made this oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, with horns. You know, there's a place for that kind of loudness and volume. Camp seems to be a place for that kind of stuff. There's also a place for stillness and silence, too. But this was not that kind of time. This was a joyous time. This was a raucous time. This was not a library moment. They were shouting horns, trumpets, loud voices, and they were rejoicing together because they had sworn with their whole heart to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. They sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. He let them find him. That phrase has come up a couple of times already. You ever play hide-and-seek with kids, either your kids or grandkids or some other kids? Uh, you know, when, when you're looking for the kid that's hiding, it's usually pretty obvious where they're hiding, right? Uh, you can hear the, them laughing, and you can see the drapes moving and things, you know. But you look in the toaster, and you look in the aquarium, and you look in the garbage can, and then suddenly you find them, and it's great happiness, and they're all giggly, and, you know, it's, you found them. And then when you hide from them, 
you hide in a pretty obvious place, right? So they can find you. Maybe you lay underneath the couch cushions or something like that. Or you hide behind the door, somewhere where it's easy to find. And they find you, and they're so happy they found you, and it's just a good time all around. You let them find you. You're not hiding from them as if you were hiding from a mob or a gang that was out to get you. So it is with God. He lets us find him. And those who look for him with all their heart will find him. Here it says, those who sought him earnestly, he let them find him. Literally, it says, they sought him with their whole desire. David talks about that, doesn't he? About hungering after God, thirsting after God. That's what God's looking for. And when he sees someone that's looking like that, he lets himself be found by them. He does the same for us today. Well, after that battle, God gave them 20 years more of rest. And we see a couple things at the end of that chapter that King Asa did. One was he took, deposed the queen mother, it says. Actually, it was his grandmother, but apparently she had quite a bit of sway in the palace at the time. And he uh, demoted her because she was worshiping an idol. And a horrid image, it says here, an Asherah. Asa cut down her horrid image. He crushed it. He burned it, got rid of it, and removed her from her place of influence and power. It's not easy to uh, discipline your, your family, right? Your parents. Imagine... Pastor Dan up here calling down his mother, you know, and putting her in a low position. It's a hard thing to do. But if we made a covenant to serve God and someone else is serving an idol, well, he's going to deal with that. And Asa did. Got rid of the idol and removed her from her place of influence. It also tells us that he dedicated things to the Lord, things that he'd, he'd gathered in this conquest, in the battle. He devoted some of that silver and gold and utensils and stuff to the Lord, to the temple. His father also had gathered some things from his battles, but his father had died before he had a chance to give them to the temple. He only only reigned for three years. So Asa gave his father's stuff and his own stuff, brought it to the temple, and life was good. But chapter 16, which is the final chapter of the story of King Asa, we see that there's another battle. The king from the north decides to come down and challenge them. So the king from Israel comes down to Judah and where the red star is or the city of Ramah he starts to build a city or maybe maybe it was already there but he fortifies the city makes it stronger he's cutting off the route to Jerusalem he's going to try to starve out the people there give them make them a hard time it's this city was about six miles north of Jerusalem here's a shot of uh, the old the old city of Jerusalem the walls that are still standing there these were fortified cities He didn't come to Jerusalem, the big city. He went to the place just before that, the little town on the road. If he could cut off the road, cut off the supply of food, the trade route, nobody could come in, nobody could go out. People up on the hill in Jerusalem would be stranded. So that's what the king of Israel was doing to the king of Judah. Now they had had skirmishes before, but this was the the first main provocation and battle. Well... Asa now has to decide how he's going to fight against this impending battle. 
What he does is, we see in chapter 16, he gathers the treasures that he has from his palace. He gathers the treasures from the temple, collects them all up, and he sends some of his men sneaking out of the city and heading up to that city up in the north there, Damascus. Now, that's in a neighboring country, the country of Aram. Today, it's Syria, but in those days, it was Aram. So he sent up a bunch of, well, bribes, really it was, I guess, to the king of Aram up there. And he sent a message to that king and said, hey, look, uh, you know, your dad and my dad used to have a treaty. And I know what times have passed, and you have a treaty now with the kingdom in the north. But I want you to break that treaty with them and make a treaty with me again and help me in this battle that I'm about to face here. And here's is a, a little bit of payment for you. Here's a whole bunch of gold and silver and this kind of thing. So King Ben-Hadad, from up at the top there in Damascus, he goes along with this plan. He accepts all the treasures. He mobilizes his army, and he has them start attacking some of the cities of Israel in the north there, close to where he is, those blue stars. Well, the king that was building the city down on the red star realized, hey, my men are getting attacked up there. So he pulls those troops, and he heads north to go fight against the guy that used to be his uh, partner with the treaty, but it's been broken now, so to fight against the king from Damascus. So he leaves. King Asa comes out of Jerusalem with his men. They go to the city where the red star is, Ramah, where they were fortifying. He takes all the stones from there, all the timbers from there. He uses that to build up a couple of his own cities nearby to fortify them so that will never happen again. He'll have his own barricades and fortifications right there to preserve and protect his city of Jerusalem. So the siege was over. The king of Israel had gone back to fight his own battles. King Asa was happy. He had success. Everything was good, he thought. But we read that another prophet comes to see him. And the prophet did not bring the kind of news he wanted to hear. Chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. Because you relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. He's chastising King Asa. Look, last time you trusted in God and God saved you. This time, why didn't you trust in God again? Why did you go and bribe some other king to fight for you? God would have helped you, but you ignored God. The next verse is sobering. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. So this prophet from God is condemning Asa for his lack of trust in God during this battle. He tells him he was foolish. Well, Asa does not respond the way he should to this. He becomes angry. He grabs that prophet, throws him in jail. In fact, it says in stocks, literally. He was enraged at this prophet. And he was mad, at, just plain mad. And he began to oppress some of his people, too. Whether it was through more taxation or physically beating them, I don't know how he oppressed them. But he was causing grief to his own people because he was frustrated and angry and 
and feeling guilty, probably, and just lashing out. He didn't turn back to God. It tells us near the end of chapter 16 that in the 39th year of his reign, he became diseased in his feet. We don't know what kind of disease it was. Uh, Some commentators have suggested gout, maybe. But whatever it was, the verse goes on to say it was severe. And even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. I wonder if this disease may have come from the Lord. Back in chapter 14, it was telling about the time when God brought distresses and troubles on the people and afflicted them to try to turn them back to him. And I think that's what the Lord was doing here too, trying to get Asa's attention again and bring him back to a place of trusting in him. And God does that for us sometimes. Has to kind of bring us to our senses. Sometimes he brings things on us to test us, to see if we're going to really rely on him or just bail and forget it. We don't read anywhere that Asa did repent and turn back to God. Maybe he did, but scripture doesn't tell us that. It tells us two years later, he died. He had prepared himself a great tomb in the city of David. This is a model of Jerusalem during Jesus' time. On the right-hand side is the city of David. And that's where the kings, the important, or the good kings at least, were buried. And he prepared a tomb for himself there. And it says a huge amount of spices and uh, smelly stuff, incense things. They had a great fire for him. They didn't cremate him, but they burned up the, the spices and things he'd collected. And he had a great send-off. But he died, as far as we can see, not trusting God at the end. So he was a good king, mostly. He was one who followed God, mostly. But he messed up at the end of his life. He turned away from God. He ignored God's messengers and actually were mean and harsh on God's messengers. He didn't seek help from God in his later years. Friends, this is a warning to us. I look across the congregation, I see lots of young people, and that's great. But I see some of us who maybe aren't so young anymore either. You know, the Olympic people with the silver hair and bronze heads and things like that. Um, This is a challenge for you, for me. Let's not swerve from following the Lord in our last years on earth. Maybe you've lived for him as fully as you could until now, and that's excellent. But don't stop now. Don't switch allegiance now. This is not the time to put our trust in our financial planner and our pension instead of our trust in God. Just because now we're on a fixed income doesn't mean we say, well, I can't help the church and God's work in the world anymore. I don't have enough money. This is not the time to put our feet up and say, I'll leave the work of the church and the prayer and stuff to somebody else. No. This guy did well for 39 years of his reign but then messed up. Let's not do that. You know, a a young boy saw his grandfather reading his Bible and praying one day. Grandpa, what are you doing? Cramming for finals. We need to be doing that too. Our day is coming. We want to be ready. Let's finish well. Let's finish strong. Asa seemed to have sort of fizzled out by the end, but he did really well earlier on. Where do we, how are we like him? In the early part of his reign or the end of his reign? What lessons can we learn from this king 
take with us today. One thing we can learn is Asaph cleaned up his kingdom. He got rid of the idols, the altars, the false gods. He got rid of those who were following false religion and encouraged his people to reform, to change, and to follow God. He repaired the altar of the Lord. He cleaned house. Are there things in our lives that we need to clean to get rid of? Things that are dragging us away from God instead of towards God. What are we watching on TV? What are we reading? What are we looking at on the internet when nobody else is around? What are we harboring in our hearts against somebody else that we never say, but it deceives inside there? Do we need to do some house cleaning in our kingdoms? Secondly, Asaph sought the Lord with all his heart and soul. And he encouraged his people to do the same. Are we willing to seek God with all our heart and soul too? God promised Asa that if he sought him, God would let him find him. The Lord is with you when you are with him, the prophet said. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Are you all in for God? Are, are we only half committed maybe? Following God when it's convenient and easy, but maybe not ready to give God full control of our lives. Thirdly, Asa recognized his only hope of deliverance was in God. When he was in that first battle, a desperate situation with that huge army, he cast himself upon God, and God came through for him in a big way. Later on, he tried to work, fight against this other army with politics and bribery and his own wisdom and sneakiness, and it didn't turn out so well for him. When he got struck sick, he looked to the doctors for help, it says, and not the Lord. And I'm not saying we don't need doctors. I'm very grateful for the doctors and the care my mother's been getting. But ultimately, is our trust in them or in the Lord? Sure, we should take advantage of what's available to us. But don't forget that God is the one who gives skill and gives wisdom to people and gives healing to our bodies, the one who made our bodies in the first place. So King Asa cleaned up his kingdom, sought the Lord with all his heart and soul, and recognized his only hope of deliverance was in God. Finally, what can we learn about God here? Three things. And they may not be new things, but they're good reminders. God is a God who delivers the weak. When Asa was badly outnumbered, God routed the enemy and saved his people. When we're overwhelmed and it feels like we're going down for the last time, remember that God is still in the rescuing business. He delivers the weak. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Secondly, God is a God who is found by those who seek him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. It says, they sought him earnestly and he let them find him. Do we seek for God? Do we truly search for him? Do we long for him? He will let, him, he will let himself be found by those who do. And lastly, God is a God who supports those whose heart is completely his. Not only supports them, but it says in the verse that he will strongly support those whose heart is fully his. Do you want the support of God? Do you want God on your side helping you? Well, we can have it. There's a condition here, though. Have a heart that's completely his, completely given over to him. We can't serve two masters, Jesus said. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be God or wealth? God or power? God or popularity? God or 
fill in the blank, whatever you want. We have to choose. Is our heart completely his or not completely his? This verse, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. I wonder, as God's eyes are going up and down through the benches here this morning, whose hearts is he finding that are completely his? I wish I could say that my heart was completely his, but much of the time it is not. That's not how I want it to be. I want to be completely his. I do want, I need his strong support, and I want to be a man whose heart is fully his. So God is one God who delivers the weak. God is a God who is found, for those, found by those who seek. And God is a God who supports those whose hearts is completely his. Thanks for your attention this morning. Let's close off our service in prayer. Father, we thank you for the, the story from this book that maybe we don't look at very much, but for the things we can learn from King Asa. And Father, I pray you would challenge us to see whether our hearts are completely yours. Lord, you are, your promise is still the same. If we seek him, we will find him. If we seek you, we will find you. May we avail ourselves, Father, of what you have for us. The immense uh, blessings and wisdom and strength and help that you want to give us. Lord, help us not to struggle on in our frailty and ignore what you offer. Father, I pray for each one this morning. Thank you for this church, for their heart for service and heart for you. Father, thank you for the leadership. I pray, Lord, for each one that you would help us to seek you, honor you, and look to you. May your blessing rest on your people today. Thanks for this chance together today and to share in this service together. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.